It is great to worship together. Josh, thank you and Danielle for leading our kids. So uh, glad to have you here. You glad to be here? Woo! Um, it is uh, awesome to worship together. And so if you're new, I met a few of you uh, who are new, maybe first time tonight. We're going to look into God's word here for a little bit. We'll end with some worship, have a space and time for communion if you want to engage in that and just have space to think. And so we started this series, Summer in the Psalms, last week. And I want to draw your attention back to our fancy, let's see, where did it go? bookmark that's not laminated it's really just paper black and white um, of just the challenge we gave to all of us was to read through the psalms this summer so I, I know i had a couple people come up and go okay like today we're supposed to be through psalm 46 and i'm on psalm 6 and, and i just want you to hear it's okay like you're not in school so, like, I'm not grading you. Like, you don't have to turn this in. Like, no one ever has to even see this. Here's my encouragement to you, to all of us. It was a simple challenge. Read through the Psalms this summer. So if you want to follow that in a reading plan, here's the point, is to not just get through the Psalms, but to get the Psalms through us. That's the point. And so we want to give you space and kind of create an opportunity and a challenge for a whole church to say there, there's something incredibly profound. We, we know that the Word of God is alive and active, we're told. That there's something profound about the Psalms, I think, that help us identify and, and wrestle with every kind of emotion that we all deal with in life. And I think God has some profound things to say in that. So um, today we're going to look at, last week we looked at Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 was this idea of kind of the, a wisdom psalm, which always kind of has a kind of two frames of reference. And it gives this challenge. We talked about the principle of the path, that if you take the right path, it will get you to where you want to go. But if you take any other path, it will get you to anywhere but where you really want to go. And so this challenge in Psalm 1 is, hey, look, give yourself to the word of God. Commit yourself to, to knowing God, pursuing him, and you're going to become like this tree that's planted by the, these flowing rivers that are always in season. You'll never have a leaf that withers. And it's this incredible picture that says a, a life that's pursuing after God has incredible impact and profound, but there's also these other paths that take you away from living any kind of life like that. And today I want to look at Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Psalm 73. If you want to open up our app and just go down to sermon notes, it'll take you to, to all the notes that we're going to look at tonight, and you can follow along there. Uh, I'm not going to read through the entire Psalm, but I want you to kind of understand what's going on. And, and to keep something in mind, I want you to uh, to maybe answer this, how many of you are amateur? You would say, I'm an amateur photographer, okay? You would say that. If you have a phone and you snap and take pictures, guess what? You are an amateur photographer, okay? But for some of you, you've been taking photography for a while. Some of you do it professionally. And there's something called perspective photography that is a way of taking a photo that changes the way your mind and your eyes see something. So, for example, like this bicycle. How many of you think that's a real bicycle? Okay, one. It's not a bike. I mean, there is a bike there, but thanks for playing along, Morgan. Uh, the, the perspective of this photograph 
makes it look like that's a bicycle, but the reality is that bike is real close in the photo and you see a Ferris wheel in the background and, and it changes the whole perspective of the photo, kind of what you're looking at, do you get it? How many of you like golf? Okay, so maybe you like this picture. How many of you think that's a 30 pound golf ball? It's huge. No, no, it's just a real golf ball taken from a perspective from the photographer and how they change their vantage point to make you think and make your eye and your mind begin to look at something a little bit differently. See, the way you look at something and the perspective that you have actually changes sometimes the reality of what you're feeling and what you're sensing. And that's what I want you to keep in mind as we go through Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I think, is one of my favorite psalms. And the reason why is because it's raw and it's real. And so as we start off kind of looking into Psalm 73, I want you to know it's going to be heavy. And you're going to be like, wow, this is a downer. Yeah, it gets better, so hang with me. But I want you to see that the psalmist is wrestling with some really big questions of life. And here's my hunch. If you and I could have coffee and we could just sit down and, and we could chat, I bet you've wrestled with these exact same questions and tensions and angst within your seasons of life where you've questioned things and gone, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't get how this is playing out this way. And that's where the psalmist is actually wrestling with some pretty heavy stuff. And he intrigues on in some things and begins to look at some things. Last, last week, again, Psalm 1, I just want to give you a quote that I thought was really helpful to sum up Psalm 1. A.W. Tozer writes this, If I look at the world, I'll conform to the ways of the world. But if I look at the word, I will conform to the will of God. And that's what Psalm 1 is really about, is who are you looking at? Which path are you taking? Which way are you beginning to play things out? Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. And Asaph is a worship leader in the temple uh, back in those times. And he's written uh, 12 psalms that we have recorded in the book of Psalms. Remember the book of Psalms is made up of like five books, collections, if you will. One through 41 and then 42 through 72 and then 73 on for about 17. And I think there's like five different sections of Psalms. And Psalm 73 opens up another section and Asaph is kind of wrestling with this question, is, is godliness worth it? Am I supposed to pursue purity? And, and does it even matter? And is it worth it in the end? And what he starts with is this incredible sentence that says, look, here's the reality of what he comes to. And he tells you right off the bat, as the psalm opens, here's what he says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. Uh, the message translates this, no doubt about it, God is good and good to the good hearted. To those who are pursuing purity, he is good. And, and there's a, a period there and he rests there and he says, look, God is good. He's good all the time, all the time. God is good. Maybe you've heard that phrase and Asaph is saying, this is reality. But then the fascinating thing is for the, for the next 16 verses, he begins to question himself. He begins to question and push back against that reality because what he begins to see happening around him in the world that's around him is surely this is not playing out. And God, where are you in these questions? Some deep, heavy questions. 
some turmoil and angst that's going on in his heart. If God is goodness, shouldn't we receive good things? Shouldn't we at least have more blessings than maybe those who have no attention or no frame of reference for God? They don't even have God on their radar at all, and yet it seems like they're winning in life, God. And he begins to wrestle with these questions. I don't know if you have ever wrestled with these questions. The angst that you see, he kind of shows up at the intersection of contradiction. And he lands there a little while and begins to look around and say, God, I don't get it. I don't get, I don't understand how the arrogant are getting away and it seems like life is great for them and yet those who pursue you are, are suffering. And I don't know if you've ever asked those questions because the psalmist Asaph is wrestling with those. In fact, the discord is so great amongst him and going up within him, he looks around and he sees apparently, hey, the good life doesn't seem to be had by those who are pursuing after God. And he begins to wrestle with these questions. Surely, if God is good to the pure in heart, why am I not seeing that play out? Why does it seem to be different? I think there's so many of us that want to believe that, God, you are good. And that those who do good things will be rewarded with good, and yet those who do cruel things, they're going to be rewarded or punished in a different way, and yet sometimes that doesn't play out that way. And there becomes this incongruence and this tension that wells up within us. I've got, I don't understand. Like, that doesn't seem to make sense. And so there's this tension that goes on within him. Even those who don't even live with God in the mix of how they live life believe that life should work with some kind of fairness to it. And yet we look around and realize maybe that is not actually what's playing out. What we think about is the principle of justice. Whether someone acknowledges it or not, the expectation that life should work with some kind of fundamental fairness from a biblical worldview that has influenced the whole Western culture. We, we live in a land that is about justice, and yet sometimes it goes unmet. And, and what do you do with that? And how do you question and wrestle with that? It comes from a biblical teaching that the heart of the universe is not some capriciousness or chaos that the creator has a purpose and has established linkages between reaping and sowing and actions and consequences. And we want to see goodness advance and evil kind of dismantled. And yet sometimes we don't see that. And we see the opposite. And the problem sometimes is that the bedrock of justice looks pretty cracked and broken. And what do you do when you see those tensions and you live in the midst of that? That's what Asaph begins to go through wrestling. God, you are good, but yet I look around and I, and I wonder what you're up to. And I wonder where you are. And, and it doesn't seem to be playing out the way that it says it should. And so he goes on, verse 2, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. My understanding of everything that was going on, God seemed to be enforcing justice so poorly that frankly, I was losing my spiritual balance, my purity of heart, is what he's kind of getting at in verse two through three. That sooner or later, I think all of us show up into this intersection and go, something seems off. And God, what do I do with that? 
Scott Peck is a poet. He wrote in The Road Less Traveled, Life is hard. Anyone identify with that? Life is hard. All of life's music is not in perfect harmony. I think we look around our world and go, it's not a harmon. I don't hear much harmony. I see pockets of it. But I don't see it all the way. Maybe uh, your mom was like my mom who taught me, hey, life isn't fair. Get over it. Ouch. Thanks, mom, for the pep talk. Maybe life isn't fair. See, when the unexplainable descends upon us, we wonder what on earth is God doing? Where is God in the midst of the hurting? And the writer of Psalm 73, Asaph, begins to wrestle with some of these deeper questions. Does God realize what's going on around here? What do I do with these questions and these doubts and these struggles and when things aren't working out and he's looking at things from a human perspective? He looks around in a human perspective and he's bothered by what he's beginning to see and he's disillusioned and he's wrestling through these questions and he begins to look closer, verse four through five, he begins to wonder why life seems so good for those who have nothing to do with God. They have seemed to have no struggles, their bodies are strong, they're free from burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human lies or turmoil that goes on or the ills of life. Verse 6, he says, look, people have turned their back on God and they don't even give any credit toward him and yet things seem to go well for them and they prosper. They seem to live with this peace and yet they're arrogant. They don't need jewelry. Their arrogance is bright enough to shine up around them. And why does it seem to go well with them? Verse 7, he goes, there's no limits for these. They have all the time and money and influence to do whatever they want. These prideful people make fun of believers and those who are seeking after God, and yet they speak against God. Verse 9 and 11, verse 12, he gives a summary of what the wicked is like. They're carefree, and they increase in wealth. And you can feel the angst within him as he's writing, observing what's going on in life. In verse 13, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain, I've washed my hands of innocence. From a human perspective, there seems to be very little reward for righteous living. Can you feel the tension that he's writing with? Have you ever felt it? Have you ever wrestled with some of the very things that you see him writing and and expressing here? God, surely you're good. And yet I look around and, and, and I don't seem to think it's right. And it doesn't seem to add up. And why am I trying to pursue purity and, and pursue following after you when it seems like everyone else is prospering? I don't get it, God. Have you ever wrestled with some of those questions? At the end of 14, he fills in, he's filled with turmoil and confusion, despondency, and what began in verse 2 and 3 as envy begins to wrestle with and agonize and self-doubt and budding bitterness that is growing within him. And he remembers that he's part of a community of faith. And so he doesn't wrestle out loud or too loud around him because he realizes there's people who are younger in their faith 
and he doesn't want to throw them off and says these are some of the big questions in life and, and I need to wrestle with them and not just kind of regurgitate it everywhere and let everyone see it because it may detour people away unnecessarily or too early and, and this is big stuff and I don't know what to do with it. And so he kind of holds it in. And yet even in holding it in, it doesn't solve the problem and the tension that he's wrestling with. It's admirable because he's really trying to wrestle with it. Verse 16 says this, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. You ever seen like squeezing a grape with your finger and it begins to squeeze and pretty soon you know it's gonna pop. It, that's what the word is describing. I, I, I tried to wrestle with all these questions and doubts and the tension and the angst that I feel, God, and, and it's becoming oppressive, squeezing. That seems pretty heavy, doesn't it? But if you have a pen, I want you to underline the next verse. Because verse 17, the whole psalm changes in one verse. And this whole trial that he's wrestling with, this kind of trial of faith that he seems to be going through, verses 2 through 16, begins to flip to this triumph of faith from 17 on to the end of the chapter. As something begins to unfold, a perspective change happens within him. He says this, verse 17 in the message says, still when I tried to figure everything out, all I got was a splitting headache. God, I don't get it. Things don't line up. And then until, he says, I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I saw the whole picture. When I went to church, something happened. And I began to see the whole picture. And what I saw at the beginning was a 30-pound golf ball. And that was my perspective. And it seemed like evil was winning. And it seems like everyone who doesn't care about God, they're the ones that are prospering. And then I went and hung out with God and I, my perspective changed and I realized the golf ball was actually just a golf ball. And my perspective was off. And it, and it flipped. And it wasn't 30 pounds. It was actually a couple ounces and it was small and it wasn't big and... That was actually a Ferris wheel and not a bike. And my whole perspective changes. And he goes from a human perspective to a heavenly perspective. And the reality is that's where truth lies. That as we enter into worship, as we begin to engage with God and get close to him, as we worship him in song, as we worship him in the word, as we worship him and put our focus and our attention on him, actually the reality of life begins to take into full view. And the other things that we seem to think are big deals or seem to be angst about or intention over begin to fade. And we begin to see how things are really see. See, the creator of all things creates. We are creative, but you didn't create anything. Do you know that? You can't create something out of nothing. Only God can do that. He's made us creative, and we can be expressive with that, but we don't have the capacity to create something out of nothing. He does that. 
And see, when you begin to understand that you begin to see life from his point of view, that's when real reality begins to take shape. And you get a firmer grip on how things really play out and what things are really worth your time and energy and efforts and what really matters in life. Your perspective begins to change. And Asaph is saying, look, I got caught up looking from a human perspective and it drove me crazy because things didn't seem to make sense and justice didn't seem to play out. But when I went and worshiped, I began to see things from a better perspective. The whole key of the psalm is the first half he's wrestling with this idea of a focus on self. The whole last half is a focus on God. He's locked into the present in the first half. He's locked into the future and what God has for him and before him into the second half. He's rocked by envy, the whole first part of the psalm. And yet he's ready for evangelism by the end of the psalm. Because his perspective became changed. What is it that changed everything for him? Worship did. That's why it's important for us to worship together. It's why it's important for you to worship on your own. It's important that looking into the word of God is worship. The way you live life, putting attention on God and trying to live for him is worship. It's your daily act of worship. That as you give your life to that, it begins to change your perspective to see things the way God sees them. And that's the true reality. And that's the invitation for us that this hinge point of this psalm begins to change us and say, look, your focus needs to be on where God is and not just on what you see from your vantage point because the, your vantage point is not the accurate vantage point. And that's what happened for Asaph. When you look at things around you and begin to judge God according to your own experiences and only your own experiences, then you can never really see the whole picture. Everything is put into proper perspective when you live in the presence of God. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this concept, this idea of focus. He says, look, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us into heaven, those who have faith. He says, since we're surrounded by them, encouraged by them, you are to let us run with perseverance the race marked out for you. You are to run your race. You don't run your neighbor's race. You run your race. You're to run your race with perseverance, fixing your eyes on who? On Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of faith. See, when you fix your eyes on the situations of what you see going on around you, that's where you live with the human perspective. But when you fix your eyes on Jesus, then you begin to live with a heavenly perspective, to begin to see things the way God sees them so that you can run and not grow weary or lose heart. And bitterness doesn't have to take root within your own heart. God's point of view is to understand that when we meet with him, we're reminded of his attributes and his character and his power, his truth, his grace, his love, that God is a God of judgment over sin as well as one who has brought a solution for sin. That we might have life with him as we live in faith, that it's only when we enter the sanctuary of God or the presence of God, just like Asaph did, that we begin to understand from God's point of view how life really works and what really matters and what's most important. I would write it this way. The mysteries of life only make sense in the presence of the majesty. The mysteries of life, the things that cause you angst, the things that, that cause us trouble, that we worry about, we think about, we get caught up with, they only make sense when I'm in the presence 
of Jesus. And I can say, Jesus, I don't get it. This doesn't seem to make sense. And he can say, it's okay. It may not make sense right now, but I've got it. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. Nothing's happening that I haven't allowed to happen. I still got it. I'm here with you. See, the whole rest of the psalm, there's kind of four key things that point out here. The psalmist Asaph begins to, as he's had this worship moment in the sanctuary of God, it changes his perspective. He begins to see things like the present is not permanent. That what you see going on around you is not the permanent state of everything. It's not how it's going to be forever. It's just how it is for right now. But it's not permanent. Only God is permanent, and he knows how things are going to play out. And as you meditate on him, it begins to harken back to the principle of the path that what you see is not all of what's going on around you. Secondly, as you begin to worship, you begin to understand that the promises of God are sufficient and strong. That his promises are sufficient and strong enough for us. Strong enough to walk with us through the tension and the angst and the confusion and the questions and the doubts. And this life and strong enough and sufficient enough to hold us to the life to come. That that's the truth we have. I love the words of Romans chapter 8. Can I just read it over you? That in Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing about this promise that we have as a follower of Jesus. Here's what we get to live with. And so if it helps you to close your eyes and just listen, just listen to these promises that are spoken over you as a follower of Jesus. If God is for you, who can be against you? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for you, won't he also give you everything else? Who then condemns you? No one. For Christ Jesus died for you, was raised to life for you, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading on your behalf. Can anything ever separate you from Christ? Does it mean he no longer loves you if trouble or calamity or persecution or hunger or you become destitute or in danger, you're threatened by death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angel, demon, neither fear for today or worry about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's hope. That's a promise that you can hold on to. Better yet, that's a promise that can hold on to you. When you run through the difficult questions that will come in life, when things don't seem to make sense, or things don't seem to play out the way you think they should, when you have the angst and the tension welling up within you, God promises and says, look, my promises you can, you can hold on to. In fact, they're so secure, they'll actually hold on to you. And they're big enough to wrestle with when those seasons of life where you're wrestling. The present is not permanent. And his promises are sufficient and secure. Asaph goes on 
and he makes a personal decision. Verse 27 and 28, the last two verses, he says this, those who desert him, speaking of God, will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you, but as for me, how good it is to be near God. I've made him my shelter in life, and I will tell everyone the wonderful things you do and that you've done for me. Surely God is good. God, I got a lot of questions. I don't understand how all this stuff plays out. I don't get it. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Ah, worship. Okay, God. Yeah, I got caught up there. I was looking at everything from my point of view, my perspective. Now I see. You really are in charge. And I thought I was on slippery ground, but people who have not tuned into you, they're actually on slipperier ground and, and you've got it and it's gonna be okay. And I don't have to live with that tension and that angst. It is good for me to draw near to God. He's my shelter. James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. And then he ends with this action, this outward action that he says it's, it's this internal perspective has changed from a human perspective to a heavenly perspective. And it begins to force him to say, I've got to do something with this goodness that I'm experiencing of God. I've got to share this. I can't just hoard the grace and hope and love of Jesus to myself. I've got to share this. I'm gonna tell everyone about what you do, God. And he goes forth and he says, his love is good and it's good for all people, including me. And I don't have to be a hoarder of God's grace because I'll never hit the limit of God's grace. See, we think sometimes that God has a limit of his grace of how much he's gonna give you. Can I just tell you and remind you, there is no limit of God's grace and of his love. You can ask for it. And then you can ask for double. And then you can ask for triple. And you can keep asking. You're not gonna reach a limit of God's love. And that's why you don't have to hoard it. That's why it's freely given to you and you can freely give it to other people. And so Asaph goes through this whole challenge. Did you hear it? God, you're good. God, I don't make, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Things don't line up. Okay, God, you're God. I'm not. Wow. I got caught up looking at everything from my point of view and I missed your point of view. And your point of view is is real. My favorite verses of Psalm 73 is this. If you want to underline it, you can. Verses 23 through 25. I just want to unpack it a tiny bit. Yet I still belong to you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. You hold me by your right hand. Do you know the verse right before this? You can look it up, verse 22. It's like, surely I was just like an animal before you, God. Meaning, when I got caught up in my human perspective and I was looking at that and all this angst and tension, all these questions and this doubt and the struggles and this wrestling I was doing with you, God, I must have just looked at you like a a wild dog, like some kind of animal that was just ranting and raving before you, yet... You just hold me by your right hand. 
I was in the parking lot. I think the fifth floor of the parking garage. We were getting ready to go to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. And a kid got out of his car, two, three years old, and he didn't sound very happy. In fact, he sounded pretty ticked and pretty upset and was yelling at his family, I don't want to be here. I'm tired of the car. This is stupid. And dad is wrestling him into the stroller as he's screaming and crying as they begin to make their way to the elevator. A mere feet, well, let's say, a mere mile from the parking garage to the happiest place on earth. And the dad is just holding his hand while he screams and cries and throws a fit. How many of you are parents? How many of you have witnessed a temper tantrum? No, no, listen. How many of you have given a temper tantrum? That's everybody, right? As adults, we mask it a little bit more. We either go shopping or, or we yell, we send nasty emails, we post on Facebook, you know, whatever that might be, but our tenter, temper tantrums are different. Here's the fascinating thing. The dad's just walking with his kid who's screaming and throwing a fit in the stroller. It's crazy town. And yet, he doesn't even know that he's a mile away in a short shuttle ride to the happiest place on earth. And what does the dad know that the kid doesn't? 10 minutes from now, it's gonna be just fine. Verse 23, I'm throwing a fit, God. I don't get it. Yet I still belong to you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? And I desire you more than anything. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak. But God, you remain the strength of my life forever. The dad holding the hand of the screaming child going to Disneyland, that's all about perspective. Friends, that's Psalm 73. God is good. He is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And you might have moments, you will have moments, where your human perspective will have you wrestle in anger and frustration and disappointment and bitterness might begin to knock on the door of your heart and envy, and in those moments, what can you do? Verse 17, worship. Worship is the key that helps change your perspective from a human perspective only to a godly perspective. 
and you see reality for what it really is. Because God is good all the time. And all the time, he is good. Father, I think this psalm hits so much of our life. And there's moments where we shout at God, you are good, and we want to pursue you, we want to pursue holiness and lean into your word and to your way of life and this wisdom path that we're talked about in Psalm 1. And yet there's other moments of the turn of a switch, it just seems like we get caught up wrestling with, man, surely in vain I've stayed pure. I don't understand how things are working out better for other people who have no thought of you. And yet I'm struggling or I'm suffering or I'm hurting. God, in those moments of tension, would you remind us of Psalm 73, 17? When I went into the sanctuary of God, I saw the whole picture. And our perspective changes. Jesus, as we take a moment to remember in communion your life, your death, your resurrection, we look at the cross and we saw from a human perspective, it seems like it's the end. Who would do that? And yet you saw from a heavenly perspective. The cross wasn't the end, it was a comma. It was a necessary comma that we might have life with you through faith. So you embraced the cross. You died in our place because you knew resurrection was coming and hope would dawn. And we could forever live with a heavenly perspective because you beat death and you invited us to have a relationship with you through faith in your son. And it means everything we face now. We don't have to look at just from a human perspective. So Father, as we worship you through communion, as we worship through this last song, God, would you stir our hearts? Would, for some of us, we need our perspective changed. We need to worship. For some of us, we need to remember and know that yet you still hold us by your hand. We may be throwing a temper tantrum, but you know that 10 minutes down the road, there's something good and we may not even see it, but you do. God, we thank you for your hope, your love, your goodness. God, you are good all the time. All the time, you are good.